Hey, this is Michael Wilson of Queensryche, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to episode 544 of Focus on Metal. So, up front there, you heard Michael Wilton, and uh, no, we don't have Michael on the show this week. What we have instead is the one and only Brian Heaton, the uh, longtime Focus on Metal contributor and part of the team here, as well as a uh, kind of our resident expert on Queensryche as he operates anybodylistening.net, which is a great Queensryche site. And uh, if that wasn't enough, he also co-authored the uh, biography of Queensryche called Building an Empire. Great book. If you haven't read it, go and uh, pick yourself up a copy of that as he digs in deep to all things Queensryche. This week, though, he and Richie will be digging in deep to uh, Here in the Now Frontier, which was the uh, sixth studio release from the Seattle band. Came out in uh, in March of 97, and I will say right up front that, uh, no, um, I'm not a fan of it. Uh, I really like the, uh, the classic earlier Reich, and I like a lot of the stuff that uh, they've been putting out since uh, Todd LaTorre has come on board. But as far as this album, uh, Here in the Now Frontier... Uh, I could kind of do without hearing it at all. There was a point in time that I was liking uh, Sign of the Times, but, uh, you know, upon repeated listenings, it, uh, I don't know, just seemed a little bit flaccid to me. Give me some uh, good rage for order any day over this album. But, you know, that is my opinion, and opinions are like assholes, right? Everybody's got one. And this week, you're going to hear two more opinions on the album as uh, Richie and Brian go through the whole album kind of give their takes and opinions on songs and direction and all that, and then just picking Brian's brain for all the nuggets about this album. And I should mention right up front that this one is going to be a long one, talking, uh, probably going to be pushing about 90 minutes, but Richie did make the request. He wanted me to run this all in one shot. So uh, I'm going to do it. Going to run it all in one shot. And it's probably a good thing as well because you kind of want to hear the whole discussion and remember what everybody said as we're going through this thing. So with that, I am going to turn it over to Richie and our guest this week, Brian Heaton. Right, Brian. I want to talk about Promised Land before we get into uh, here in the Now Frontier, which is what we're really going to get into, which is, if you can believe it, is 25 years old this year. Um, Crazy. I personally, I'm a massive fan of Promised Land. Um, I think it's probably the most underrated record of the the Garmo era. Um, unfortunately, though, I wasn't able to catch the tour for that. Were you able to see the tour on that record? I did at uh, Jones Beach, uh, July '95. It was uh, back in New York. It was uh, it was a great tour, um, really theatrical, which you would expect, and. You know, it wasn't quite as big and bombastic as the Empire Tour, but um, when you roll out a piano for Chris to play on and they set up a whole bar scene for the song Promised Land, um, it was it was pretty amazing. Mm. Well, were you a big fan of that record when it came out? 
it's funny. It took me a little bit. Um, at first, you know, I'm trying to remember back now, 1995. I remember putting it on and, and liking Damaged and IMI, but I didn't quite get the whole melancholy feel of the record um, at first. It took me a little while, and then, you know, one night I was listening to it on headphones, and it finally clicked what they were talking about. And, you know, the, the whole darker side of success and kind of what that does um, to you as a person. Um, and then it kind of sort of clicked with me. And from there on out, I became a huge, a massive fan of Promised Land. I, I agree with you. I think it's very underrated by mainstream people. I think the true Queensryche fans think of it as a classic. But I think the mainstream audience they picked up with Empire, it probably left them scratching their heads a little bit. Yeah, when you brought up talking about here in the now frontier, and I've been thinking about this for a while when it comes to Queensryche, when you look at the first six records, I'm not including the EP, stylistically, none of them really sound the same. You were you you, you knew you were always going to get something different from the band on each record that they hadn't really done on the album before. And I think with Promised Land, in a lot of ways, it was the opposite of Empire. Empire was the commercial peak. A lot of people might say they were writing for radio, but most of the songs on that album were over five minutes long. A couple of them were seven minutes long. But Promised Land is not Empire Part 2. No, not at all. I, I promise, Promised Land, I think, is... It's got the sensibilities of the things that they learned from Empire, but it kind of goes back a little bit to their you know, their darker history. I wouldn't say, like, stylistically, it's it's not similar to Mind Crime, but there are a lot of stylistic similarities to Rage for Order. You know, the, the record uses a lot... Um, I mentioned the word melancholy, and, and that's kind of the, the word I would use to describe Promised Land as a whole. I definitely feel that the record is completely different than empire but there are things like bridge on there that kind of borrow a bit from silent lucidity looking at the acoustic based single to try and generate some mainstream interest there's definitely some mainstream appeal to a few of the songs from promised land but i definitely think they were interested at the time in, in kind of um kind of dialing it back a bit and getting a bit darker and and i and i think that was a wise choice it just happened probably two years too late what sort of press coverage i'm i'm talking about printed press were queens right getting in america around the time of promised land were, were they getting as much as they were with uh with empire in the beginning absolutely yes um for the the release of imi uh, as the first single off that record they had magazine covers um mtv specials they they were they were at the top of the height of still riding that whole empire push. There was a big push for Promised Land right at the outset, and I think when IMI didn't quite you know knock the socks off of people, I, I think a lot of that support kind of started to to die down a little bit. You know, Promised Land, if you look at it from a sales perspective, sold about a million copies. You know, as of, I don't know, 10 years ago or so, last time I had the numbers in front of me. So, you know, that's down a little bit from Empire's 3 million. But what people don't understand is the band changed, and four years after Empire is a long time to be out of the public spotlight. And they had actually two years. They toured for Empire for two years, and then they were gone for two years. And, and back then, that was a huge, huge, like, departure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but as in terms of you know the press and media attention, 
Promise Land was huge at the beginning. Um, they had all of that support. They were doing all of the interviews. And it really was prime to, to follow up on that success of Empire. But for a variety of reasons, the, I would say the songs that they chose for singles being one of them, it just didn't quite catch on, along with, obviously, um, you know, the middle to end of grunge at that period, that the style of that record maybe didn't appeal with the mainstream audience like it did back in 1990. Yeah, it's interesting that you say they, they got a lot of coverage because in the mid-90s, I'm still living in Ireland, I get a lot of the music magazines from the UK, but I wasn't really buying them then because i kind of fallen out of love with a lot of the magazines in the 80s that that really were my music bible that opened the door for a lot of bands for me because they were disparaging about a lot of the 80s bands. Um, it was the new flavour of the month. It was all the grunge stuff. It was the new metal was just coming in. And even bands like Queensryche were multi-platinum acts. Some, they were kind of laughed at by some of them. And they weren't really given the coverage I think they deserve. And... When it comes to here in the now frontier, it's interesting. You you probably have a, a completely different take on all of this coming up to the release of that record. Because I wasn't buying the magazines and they weren't really getting coverage on TV over there, the first time I heard that Queensryche had a new record coming out, which is here in the now frontier, was when I picked up Kerrang! and it got reviewed. And bear in mind now, I'm a huge fan. And this is pre-internet you know pre uh, 97. And... I was like, fuck, Queensryche have a new album. and um, <laughs> So that's how I found out about hearing the Now Frontier. So what sort of build-up did you guys have over here on that record? Well, I don't remember it being as much as Promised Land, that's for sure. But over here, back in like 1996 or so, I know the band released their Promised Land CD-ROM game, which kind of set the stage a little bit for eventually here in the now frontier they they weren't out of the public eye for as long as they were out of the public eye um after empire and so here and there there were some interviews you would hear some comments we're writing a new record um there was the seattle 96 fan club event where they were where they mentioned they were doing um a new record but there wasn't as big of a mainstream you know rock and metal news for Queensryche in late 96 before the record i found out they were doing another one i'm trying to remember here it was probably november december of 1996 and the record dropped in march of 97 so i was online and you know visiting at the time i not quite sure if it was queensrike.com yet, but looking at the, you know, all the Queensrike sites on the internet and, you know, there were bits and pieces of them doing a new record. You know, we saw some song titles here and there. For example, the voice inside was initially titled just inside. And so you heard little snippets, not like of the songs, but you got little information snippets that they were doing a record, but the major magazine push didn't really happen until the record was just about ready to be released. I remember in early 97, that's when I started seeing a lot of the articles for the record, March, February of 97. When did you find out Peter Collins was back producing? Um, probably about the same time period. You know, I didn't follow that stuff as closely back then. For me, you know, at the time, it's just the tunes and it's just the band. And I never really paid too much attention to who is producing or who is, you know, recording and mixing the record. 
uh, that came later, and obviously then it, you know, it kind of stirred up, oh, I, I really like the records that have Jimbo Barton recording and mixing. Those usually sound really good to me. And that, that was something I picked up later, so I didn't really pay too much attention to it at the time. Where did you think they were going to go stylistically after Promised Land? What sort of record did you want? Well, I mean, before that, let me just mention something about Peter Collins, though. I absolutely do do think that bringing back Peter Collins was the right move for here in the now frontier. I, I really, and I'll, I'll answer your question in a second, I, I think that here in the now frontier had so much potential. I, I think they had Peter Collins behind them. They had a very, and we'll get into this, I'm sure, they had a very popular you know, engineer and Toby Wright working with them instead of Jimbo Barton this time around. And Toby Wright, obviously, with his work with, you know, Alice in Chains and then later with Korn, he had everything dialed in during that time period. So I, I thought the stage was really set for that record to do well. As for what I expected, to be honest, I didn't know. Um, I remember as a fan, like I told you, after Empire, when they came out with Promised Land, I didn't get it for a little bit. And it, it took me a couple weeks, a few weeks, to really get dial in with that record. Here in the Now Frontier, I just didn't know what to expect. I was happy we were getting another Queensryche record. Again, it was you know two and a half years from Promised Land, so you wonder sometimes if we're going to get a new record, you know. And then all of a sudden, it was here. So I didn't really know what to expect, nor did I know what I wanted. You know that you mentioned it before. Queensryche really had this reputation of changing their style with every record, but yet maintaining this thread that was distinctly them. And it, it's one of the things that, you know, drew me to them as a fan. It's like, you can listen to these records and they all have these different elements on it. But at the end of the day, it sounds like Queensryche. And, um, you know, to me, at least here in the now frontier didn't disappoint in that regard. It just took a little longer for me to appreciate it. I think. Here's the issue that I have, and I still have it with here in the now frontier. If that was any other band, I probably wouldn't listen to it as much and say, I love this band, I have to like it. I'm a huge fan. I just cannot get around my head around the sound of it. When I when I think, talk about Rage for Order and Operation Mind Crime and Empire and Promised Land, one of the reasons all those records stand out to me is the pristine sound that they all have. Everything is crystal clear on it meticulously recorded and in a lot of ways perfect and this here in the now frontier record is just in a lot of ways to me it's the opposite of that and i've always wanted to know what was the you know the catalyst for that because in a lot of ways the earlier records were were groundbreaking they were queensrike records but they stood out from everybody else and to me in a lot of ways this record is it's Queensryche following the trend rather than setting it. You know, I, I've said that I said that in a similar way for years, but here I've changed my mind on that um, over the last several years, and here's why. I, I feel like Queensryche have always followed a little bit of trends in their music. Empire came out. It simplified without making their sound dumb simplified their sound to broaden it to a, a larger commercial base. That's exactly what every hard rock and metal band was doing at the time. Then you look at Promised Land. Yes, it's dark. There's a lot of acoustic. What was popular then? Acoustic stuff. Alice in Chains had a lot of success with acoustic EPs. 
and acoustic material. There was the whole unplug thing, which was a huge success for Queensryche that happened at the tail end of Empire. And you had a lot of acoustic stuff on on Promised Land. So now here you go with Here in the Now Frontier and what's popular at the time. And, and I'll make this comparison, and it's a comparison I love making. If you throw on Soudan Gardens Down on the Upside, which was released in 1996, and you listen to the first few songs of that record, and then you put on Here in the Now Frontier, you'll know exactly what Chris DeGarmo was likely listening to as he was looking to write songs for Here in the Now Frontier. I just think that Queens, right, they do change their sound from album to album, but I just think, yes, they're influenced by what they're listening to, and they have to know what's popular and what's not popular. I mean, Seattle is their backyard. I mean, that whole movement of Alice in Chains and Soundgarden and Pearl Jam, that whole quote-unquote grunge movement happened in their backyard. And you had to believe that some of that would rub off on them to a, a certain degree. And and it did on Here in the Now Frontier. You know, one of the things I'll, I'll say, Richie, is this. Here in the Now Frontier might have this reputation of being their, you know, I hate using the word grunge, but l- let's use it. Their Queensryche's grunge record. But it's actually one of their most interesting guitar-based records that they've ever done. The guitar work on Here in the Now Frontier is amazing. And it's in a different style. If you're expecting to hear the metal guitars of Operation Mindcrime or even, say, like a song like Empire, you're going to be disappointed. But if you sit there and you just listen to the guitar, you start isolating instruments and listening to the stuff, it's pretty amazing some of the stuff guitar-wise that DeGarmo and Wilton did on that record. And I, and I, I would challenge you to go back and listen to it. I mean, the sound may not be the same pristine sound that we've gotten on Empire and Promised Land in particular. But, I mean, again, that was what was popular at the time, and, and they were shifting and moving their, their their music around to kind of fit with the times. And I think they've always done that. I just think we've always, as fans, we've always said, oh, well, they never follow trends. They've always done this. Well, it's not exactly true. They they did follow some trends. And I, and I think here in the Now Frontier continued that in their way. But how did they think that would work with the fan base who were, who were expecting something along the lines of what came before? Because you have to bear in mind as well, Brian, that for a lot a lot of Queensryche fans, you know, they're being shoved, all this grunge shit has been shoved down their throat for years and, and they're thinking, oh, Christ's sake, you know, I can't wait now. And a, a, a Queensryche record, you know, that I'll be able to listen to that won't sound like all that other stuff that everyone is saying is great and all the old stuff is crap. And then they come out with this. How do you think a lot of the fans felt? Well, I mean, it depends. I know how I felt. I mean, but before I say how I felt, you know, I would say, and obviously I don't know what the band thinks about the record, but, you know, I would say that the band wasn't overly concerned with, you know, what, everybody is going to be thinking about the record. They're going to be thinking about what they want to do. Tinged a little bit with the record company wanting a marketable record. You know, it's so hard with this stuff, Richie. And, and obviously, we're not band members. We're not musicians. And we don't do this for a living. But I think everything that a band does, especially an established band like Queensryche was in 1997 with hit records behind them, 
in some way they're fighting to not be influenced by other things and in other ways they're listening to record company executives it's a hard balance you know and and i think when they went into the studio to record here in the now frontier i i know one of the main things was that they didn't want to overproduce their demos they didn't want to sit on the songs forever and just continually fine-tune them and tweak them which they did in the past particularly you know like on rage for order and mind crime and empire you know they were in they were writing songwriting for you know a year and a half and tweaking these things constantly they didn't want to do that with here in the now frontier they wanted to come up with a, a pretty straight laced demo run it through a few times if it sounds good good we've got one and mark that down it was an experiment and kind of stripping things down a bit and trying something new trying a, a, another different sound so it's kind of hard that balance between you know artist integrity fan expectation and what a label wants it's got to be difficult i mean i'll admit when i first got um i got a promotional copy of here in the now frontier probably in late february of 97 it was something yeah, right after valentine's day 97 i remember that i remember sitting in my car with a buddy of mine and we popped in a cassette and we started listening to it and our first reaction was what the hell is this because it didn't sound anything like we thought we remembered so it took a little bit you know and and, and again it was grower on me so i mean that was my perspective as a fan and you know over time and i would say over the, these last 25 years my appreciation of that record and what Queensryche and particularly DeGarmo was trying to do with Here in the Now Frontier has only grown. And, and I really do feel like if some of the situations, and I'm sure we'll touch on them in a bit, but some of the situations didn't come up later that year, I really feel Here in the Now Frontier would have been a lot more successful than it was. DeGarmo was steering the ship on this one. 100%, do you think? No, not 100%. I, I think you, it's hard because you got to remember the, how the, the balance goes in Queensryche. I think artistically, they all had input. I mean, I think DeGarmo and Tate both had input on this one. I I mean, they all did, right? But, you know, Empire was, you know, a little going commercial. You know, Promised Land pulled back on that commercial. And then here we go with Here in the Now Frontier, and they're trying to get back some of that commercial sensibility again. Was that chris in particular i'm not sure i will say though if you look at the songwriting you know most of the music of that record is composed by chris you know more so than any other Queensryche record um yeah, lyrics so, too yeah he was really involved with the lyrics you know but chris you know and i, and I want i don't want to put words in the man's mouth either but you know at the time things were you know you know chris was being looked to to do more and more i mean he was the guy who wrote silent lucidity you know he was the guy who wrote Bridge, you know, songs that really did well for Queensryche. And, and, and I just feel like, you know, there must have been something in the room where they looked to him to like, OK, well, what ideas do you have? You know, and, and he was relied on a lot in that band to kind of steer direction a little bit. I don't want to say completely. And, and obviously, I, I'm, I wasn't there and I'm, I'm and I'm just kind of a historian looking back on this stuff. But, you know. Yeah, I, I would say Chris was heavily involved, and I, I think Tate was too. And you know, but I think the idea was to get a little bit more of that commercial sound back, and a little bit of that marketability that perhaps was lost a bit with Promised Land, with how dark it was. Mm. See, here's one of the when you look at the songwriting on this and the sound of the record. 
And Michael Wilton is the he's probably the metal guy in in that band. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. You listen to the sound of this record and you put yourself in Michael Wilton's shoes, right? You've Chris coming in with all the songs, it sounds the way it does. Michael has a co-write on one song. That had to be a, a difficult record for him. Well, maybe. It, it depends on the situation, too. I mean, remember, there's always outside factors at play with a, a lot of this stuff. Queensryche has a, a obviously a large history of drama, which we all know. And back at that time, you know, I know that Chris definitely picked up the slack from a writing standpoint. And, you know, Michael does reach. Um, he wrote that reach. It was a co-write with Tate, and Tate wrote the lyrics and the melody, but the music was Michael. And Rich is a good tune, good solo by Wilton as well. It was a really good song. I think it's kind of well documented at this point that that DeGarmo was really that that kind of bridge from the rest of the band to Tate. He related more to Tate better. He could take the other band members' ideas and and kind of funnel them through something that Jeff would then be inspired by. I think that's pretty fair to say at this point. You know, perhaps with this record, you know, as it got a little further and further away from Michael's metal roots, which obviously with the later, you know, the more recent Queensryche material, they're, they're back. But as the material kind of floated away from that, you, you floated away from Michael Wilton's strengths as a writer. And, uh, you know, somebody's got to write the songs. So, I I mean, so Chris picked up the slack. Yeah. You see, you have to wonder at that stage, was Michael coming in with five or six songs and only one was getting picked? Like, because Eddie has two co-writes on this and they're probably two of my favourite songs on, on the record because they're, they're heavy. Um, they're more, to me, they're a lot more like traditional Queensryche, the Queensryche that came before. Um, but was Eddie coming in with six songs and Michael was coming in with six and, and Chris was coming in with 12 and they were picking Chris's, ten of Chris's and one of Michael's and... Was that the way it worked, or was Michael only coming in with one? You see, you have to you have to factor all this in. Well, for sure, I I think that only they can really answer that. I would say I would say from the history that I've been able to glean over the years, Michael Michael did come in with a couple ideas for sure. I mean, he he had reach that was an idea. I do know that um, he told me one time that he did come up with an an initial idea for the song Spool. Um, even though he's not credited on that, I'm assuming he meant he had a different version of the music for school and they ultimately didn't go with it. And he also wrote a song called Tomorrow Begins Today, which uh, most people probably listen to this podcast never even heard of. And that's because it never surfaced. It was a demo that Michael had written for Here in the Now Frontier that they decided not to use. And uh, he gave it to Pamela Moore's sister, Ori Moore. And uh, on one of her records, um, she has independent, a couple independent rock records out there. That song's on there. And Ori Moore kind of rewrote it a little bit to fit her. And he gave that song to her. You know, I, it's weird. The Queensryche dynamic with songwriting was interesting throughout the years. As you, look at, as you look at the record starting from the EP and you go all the way through Here in the Now Frontier, you, you see that the dynamic was DeGarmo and Wilton and Tate. And then over time... Wilton, after Empire, Wilton started to fade a little bit as the music got, in my opinion, probably less metal and more, I don't want to say commercial, because Promised Land wasn't overly commercial. But you definitely you definitely see the trend of Michael lessening and some of the other guys increasing. Rock and Field had a little bit of a hand in things like Della Brown. 
um, on Empire and disconnected on, on Promised Land. And again, he's on here in the Now Frontier. I believe he co-wrote Facing Blue Sky, the, the B-side. Yeah. And Eddie. You know, and Eddie's got Anytime, Anywhere, and Hit the Black co-writes on there with, with DeGarmo. It's just however their stuff works. I mean, I, I think if you're a Queensryche fan, you know the value of DeGarmo, and you know what that DeGarmo was the heavy hand in the songwriting department in the 90s for the band. You know, and Empire, Promised Land, and Here in the Now Frontier, to me, are not metal records. They're hard rock records. And again, metal is where Michael Wilton's strength was. So, yeah. So what did you make of the the first song you would have heard from this was Sign of the Times, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So that, that probably came out just before the record, right? Yeah, that was their first single for the record. Um, I had heard it about a month and a, probably about right, right about the time it hit radio. Um, I don't think I got the promotional copy for that thing until that song had already been released. Now that I think about it, so yeah, it, it was out there. I, I liked Sign of the Times. It was different, which I kind of expected. Um, it had an interesting guitar solo. I, I remember remember sitting and listening to it and thinking, this is going to be the wrong terminology for it, but it sounded kind of flat to me. And I didn't, you know, I just, I'm remembering from 25 years ago, but I really wasn't sure. I mean, Queensryche always had changed things. And, you know, Sign of the Times has always been a tune that I really dig. I, I, I like it lyrically. I think it's typical Queensryche, you know, good Queensryche from a lyrical standpoint, asking questions. And musically, again, I'm a fan of Soundgarden. So when I listen back to Sign of the Times, it instantly transports me back to, you know, an album uh, down on the upside from Soundgarden. And so to me, you know, it, I dig it. You know, I love the metal stuff, but I love the stuff that came in the 90s and early 2000s, too. You know, I just gone back and forth. I will, I will say this, though. I mean, I felt like here in the now frontier had way too much filler tracks on it i i feel like the experiment of let's not overdo these demos let's just come up with these song ideas and put them down and record them and they might have thought about stepping back a little bit and, and just kind of refining the, the the better songs and maybe if the, the record was three or four songs less in length it might have been a, a punchier record for sure without some of the drag down that there is in the middle interesting you bring that up because when you look at Mindcrime, it's just under an hour. I think Empire is just over an hour. And I remember when Promised Land came out, and of course, this is the age of the CD, and I don't, you put it in, and it was 48 minutes, and I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> it's, only, it's only 48 minutes long. With, yeah, with, uh, four with, years with, after Empire, yeah. we only got 48 minutes, yeah. I remember. It's, it's <laughs> with, with, uh, with 10 songs, and I do remember when Here in the Now Frontier came out, it was 14 songs. And mo- they were nearly all pretty short. And I do remember, you know, I, hearing Sign of the Times. I think I heard it once before I, I heard the record. And it was interesting. It still sounded like Queensryche, but in a lot of ways, the only way it sounded like Queensryche was Jeff Tate was singing on it. If it wasn't Tate singing on it, it could have sounded like a lot of other bands that were out there at the time. For that particular song, maybe. You know, I don't know if I fully agree. I'd have to go back and, and listen to it again. Obviously, I got to run it through my head as, as you're, you're saying this, but I, I'd have to listen to it again. I'm not going to disagree that there's definitely songs on there that are reminiscent of other bands of the time. 
There, there definitely, there definitely are. Uh, again, I keep going back to down on the upside of that record from Soundgarden. To me, that that plays a huge impact on the the influence, at least in my opinion. I, I'm not really sure Chris would have to answer for himself, but it, to me, it's like, well, you know, I'm, if you're friends with Cornell and Soundgarden's recording a record in your backyard, you're probably getting influenced by that, you know. But then I listen to songs. If you keep going, they sound they sound different. But then there's some things that are familiar. I mean, if if you listen to you, right, you probably has the the most simplistic lyrics on the record. So lyrically, it's not the greatest tune. No, no offense to Jeff Tate. No, but if you li- <laughs> if you listen to it, but if you listen to it musically, it's actually very Queensrÿche. And if you get to the solo, the solo fa- had something in it that. You know, I was struggling to, to come up with another example of this in their catalog. The, the Queen, Michael and Chris have always either done their whole like handoff leads. You know, they would play a solo and one would do for the, the first part, the other one would do that, and then they'd harmonize. This one, when you kick into the solo, they're both playing lead parts. Nobody is playing. I mean, there's a rhythm track underneath, but if you listen really closely to the solo, they're both soloing over one another, which is a little, they've never done that before. And it's one of those things where somebody is playing one part and then underneath you hear another solo going on at the same time. You know, those are the kind of things where when people like, oh, you know, here in the now frontier is this. I'm like, have you listened to that solo? If not, you should probably go back and listen to it because it's very Queensryche and it's different at the same time as being very Queensryche. Do you, have, do you wonder why at the time they got Peter Collins back at all? Oh, for sure. I mean, I, because of the, because Peter Collins probably got them on schedule. He's a big name. He was the he spearheaded Empire and, and Mindcrime, the band's two most successful records. And if you have a chance to have a record produced by Peter Collins, you go have your record produced by Peter Collins. You know, I, I think that that was a smart move on their part. You know, when I, I interviewed, um, as you know, I, I interviewed Toby Wright earlier this year about here in the Now Frontiers uh, 25th anniversary for anybody listening.net. And he mentioned to me, I, I, I asked him a question. I said, Toby, you know, I always thought that Peter Collins was really hands off on here in the Now Frontier. Like he didn't have much of a um, an influence on it. And he completely disagreed. He said Peter Collins was... Heavy, very heavily involved in the music and the songs of Here in the Now Frontier. He was adamant about that. Um, he says, no, whatever you thought, that's not right, because he was Peter was very involved. And again, with Peter Collins' track record of success, you know, you go with that. And if you have a chance to hire him and bring him back, you do that. And, and I thought that was a smart move on their part. Did Toby say how involved he was in the sound of the record, or was that up to Toby? Toby Wright said to me that Peter left the sounds of the record. I'm trying to remember the exact quote, so I'm not going to be able to give you the exact quote. It, it's it's on my website if you want to take a look at it. But he said that Peter generally left all the sounds up to Toby. Um, if he didn't like something, though, that wasn't kind of gelling for him, he would speak up immediately. And he did that once or twice. Was Toby Peter's choice to engineer the record? Or did the band say to Peter, we want Toby? Do you know that? No, I don't know. Um, that wasn't, I asked, I, when I asked Toby the question about that, he didn't really, he didn't really elaborate too much. He basically just said he just got involved. He had never worked with Peter before at that point. 
I don't know who brought on who and why. Um, he just said that he got a call to go do the Queensryche record, and he jumped at the chance. You see, normally with producers, that they have a, an engineer that is kind of their right-hand man. Like Keith Olsen had Shea Baby for years, and then there was Dwayne Barron and John Purdell, and, you, you know, there was, there was a producer and then an engineer. And mm-hmm. it kind of came in tandem. You had... Jimbo Barton worked with, with, with Peter on, on the earlier records. Um, and I always wondered how much input Peter had in Toby's hiring on this because Toby's coming at it from a completely different mindset to the Queensryche records that Peter did beforehand. Toby was just on Alison Chains, the, the self-titled, you know, different sounding records. And I wonder, did Peter come in and say, right, I'll produce the record, but I don't really know this Toby Wright guy. He's going to make it sound like this. Yeah, I really don't know the, the ins and outs of that. I mean, I do know that, you know, uh, Toby Wright was, he was very much in favor of, he liked the songs. He said he liked the songs when he first, they, they, he came in, he was not involved in pre-production. Toby Wright was not involved in pre-production. When he finally did come in, the band did one rehearsal for him so he could get a handle on the sound that they had already established for the record and the songs themselves so that he knew what he had to, how he wanted to record things. He said that he spent a lot of time with um, Chris and Michael with their guitar sounds. He wanted, um, I'm trying to paraphrase this out off of memory, but essentially, his point to, to Michael and, and Chris were bringing a lot of guitars. Let's make sure that, you know, even though you guys work closely together, that we have distinct guitar sounds on the record. And that was one thing he really stressed to both Michael and Chris. But yeah, he was adamant that all the sounds were really up to Toby. Um, and Peter only really piped up about that when he had a, an issue with some of that sound. So yeah, that, that's all I've got on that. You have to wonder as well, was it going through Toby's head that he was the guy to come in and grunge up all the classic rock bands? That he'd done it for Kiss with Carnival of Souls, and now here was Queensryche hiring him to do the same thing in a lot of ways with them. You know, I asked him very gently that question, because I, I said, you know, a lot of Queensryche fans deadpan than Al Frontiers being this grunge record. And he defended himself, and he didn't care. He's like, I don't care. He goes, I don't care what people think. It's it's a snapshot in time, and he was really proud of his work on the record. And he just says, you know, you, you, you make a record, you put everything you've got into it, and if people like it, they like it. And if they don't, they don't. And, you know, the more that we, we do this over the years, Richie, when we, we have exposure to a lot of these music, musicians and studio professionals, you know, that's a common thing that comes up. I think a lot of these guys, they... You know, they come in, they've got their ideas, you, you have an experiment, you do this record, and you're proud of all the hard work that you've done on a record, and it's out there, and it's done. And, and whatever people like you and I and the rest of the fan bases think about it, it is what it is. But when I asked him that question, he just didn't, he really didn't care too much what, you know, people thought. You know, he was proud of the work, and, and the band was proud of the work. He spoke really highly of Chris and Chris's willingness to try different things and, and you know, get in there and, and what Chris's kind of vision for things was. He talked about taking, uh, Chris taking lead vocals on All I Want and, you know, complimented Chris on his on his voice and uh, 
his ability to be able to step up and do that when you got a giant like Jeff Tate next to you. You know, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I personally feel that, you know, Toby Wright got a bad rap on this record. I, I mean, Richie, I, I got to admit, the reason why I, I thought this would be a great kind of podcast was I understand that there's a lot of fans out there that, that feel like Queensryche kind of ended after Promised Land. And I, I, I sort of felt that way to a degree for a few years myself. And I've come around on the record a ton. It'll never be my favorite Queensryche record. But I like it a lot, and it's it's grown on me. And in 25 years, people change their their feelings on things change. But if you really sit down and you throw that record on, you put it on your headphones, and you start listening to that record, you know when there's filler, and you can hear the filler. But like I mentioned earlier, if you just isolate certain things, you isolate some of the guitar work, if you isolate the bass work, and just not like you can't physically isolate it unless you have the the actual tracks but if you sit there and just intently listen to the particular instruments there is some really great work on that record and um i think it just flew under the radar and i also think there's a lot of cool songs on there that people just don't know about i mean if you um, spool for instance which closes the record spool is your typical kind of epic sounding queensryche song and i think what people forget even though it's kind of this mid-tempo epic song if you listen at the end of that song michael wilton just goes off and it's got to be wilton it sounds like wilton wilton just goes off and goes through a shred fest the guitars are his guitar though is lower in the mix so it's harder to pick out but if you sit there and you listen to it it's like holy shit he's going off and it's impressive and just like I mentioned the solo in you, you, you kind of listen to that. It's awesome. You know, if you're more of a Pink Floyd guitar kind of a fan, well, if you listen to, you know, DeGarmo's soloing in, in the song Hero, Hero's kind of a, I don't know, I don't know, it's kind of a, I don't want to say bland, but it's kind of definitely a more of a monotone track for sure. You know, candidate for the skip button when you're driving around in your car. But if you listen to uh, DeGarmo's guitar playing, and you listen to that solo, it's a pretty amazing piece of work he just did. You know, and I think that's the thing that bothers me the most when people skip over here in the Now Frontier is just there are so many good moments of Queensryche brilliance on that record that just totally got skipped over. And we haven't even talked about the reasons why, after a big start with Sign of the Times and then with you, that that album kind of fell off the charts quickly. I mean, it wasn't due to the songs not being popular. It was due to lack of support from a, a label that went bankrupt. Yeah, we'll get into that, Brian, but I'm going to tell you the songs that I really like on the record, right? Go for it. Um, the voice inside is excellent. I like Reach. I like Miles Away. And the last three songs are really good. Um, the two ballads, I think, aren't anywhere near the ballads that they did before. I like some people fly in hero. I they're nowhere near as good as Silent Acidity. I will remember any of those songs at all, in my opinion. I I just don't think they're I d I don't know, you you said that they wanted they didn't want to overthink stuff. To me, I think I think some of these songs aren't fully formed. That's it could just, be. That's just my opinion. Like the the choruses on on 
on Hero just doesn't grab me. Doesn't grab me on some people fly either. You know, but again, that that's just me. Cuckoo's Nest is complete grunge. You know the the da 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 You know that to me is the real grunge track on this. It's like Rain from uh, Carnival of Souls, second song. <laughs> you know. Yeah. No, I, and I can understand that, Richie. I mean, you know, people are going to have songs that they really gravitate to, and, and ones that they don't. And and I and I and I definitely think that the influence of Seattle on what Queensryche was writing for this record, I think it's undeniable. I remember reading, I forget it was, it was either in Rip Magazine or Circus or one of, the, one of the major metal magazines at the time. You know, Chris made a joke about this, the quote-unquote Seattle sound and how they scooped it up and just sprinkled it in their coffee for this record and he laughed. You know, making fun of that whole like, you know, it's not like we're sitting there trying to be a grunge band. I, I really don't think they were trying to be a grunge band I, I or, or trying to purposefully you know sound like Alice in Chains or anything I just think that when you listen to certain things and your friends are some of these musicians you pick up new ways of playing an instrument that lead to the way you write a song differently and you know it's hard you know I like some of the, I mean I'm a big Alice in Chains fan I'm a big Soundgarden fan and so for me as Queensryche sound evolved mine was too you know, I still love all my stuff from the classic 80s. I, I was, you know, having a conversation with my wife yesterday about Dokken, for instance. I love my 80s, you know, metal with everything overproduced. It, it's great, you know. Kiss of Death, one of one of Dokken's best songs, and that's for another podcast. But anyway, you know, I love that sound. But I was shifting with the times, too. And I didn't really give things... This is going to sound really smug, so everybody who's laughing could laugh at me. I'm laughing. Everybody who's listening can laugh at me a little bit. You know, I, I never gave labels to stuff back in the 90s. I never really did. I heard this term grunge, and you know, it was just all hard rock and metal to me. I didn't care. You know, it was only later that I really started kind of boxing things in as, as certain things. And, you know, for me, here in the now frontier, sure. You know, like I said, there's I, I hear Soundgarden's down on the upside. I hear a little bit of Alice in Chains's, you know, acoustic EPs, you know, Jar of Flies, you know, and, and Sap. I, I hear a lot of that. I think it's kind of undeniable. And I think that Queensryche songwriting, if you follow the thread through Promised Land, where they were getting more acoustic tinged and simpler, I think the progress to here in the now frontier was inevitable. I, I just think that's where Chris's songwriting was going. And, and if you, it's easy to see now, looking back over 25 years, if you follow it, you know, it's there. And, and then when the original lineup got back together for, uh, you know, five or six songs for Tribe, you hear it there, too. And it's just taking it in a different way again. But you, you hear that thread, that continuity. And so for me, I have a bunch of favorite songs on here in the Now Frontier. L like you, I'm a big fan of Reach. I dig that tune. I love Spool. Hit the Black is, is just a good punch in the face. That was one I think Eddie was co-credited on with Chris writing the music. You know, I, I love the voice inside, too. I'm glad you said that. Anytime DeGarmo plays slide guitar, gets a big thumbs up from me. But I like most of it. I, I would say the ones that I really don't like, um, I'm not, a, and you're, you and I disagree on this one, I'm not a fan of Anytime, Anywhere, mostly because I think lyrically it was a little silly, Jeff and his sexual obsession kind of thing. It is what it is. It works for some people. 
doesn't work for others. It's better. It's better than some of the Jeff Tate sexual songs <laughs> from later on. <laughs> You're damn right about that. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's no joke. But yeah. you know, I'll take any any time anywhere over all those. But yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not a big fan of Miles Away. That really doesn't do it for me all that much. But you know, as I've listened back to it, I've really appreciated what they were trying to accomplish with it. And and I really think they would have succeeded had the cards been dealt a different way to them in, in 97. I always skip all I want. I, I, when I put on a Queensryche record, I want to hear Jeff Tate singing. Yeah, I I, I was, I was going to avoid talking about all I want. I, hey, you know, it, it's DeGarmo's debut as a, as a lead singer. He's got a good voice. He's not Jeff Tate. And, you know, and I mean, that's why Jeff Tate was the lead singer. I, I realize that, you know, Jerry Cantrell sang with Lane Staley and Allison Chains and it works and it's great. Even Jerry Cantrell would turn to you and say, Lane Staley is way better of a singer than me. And he'd say, William Duvall is a way better singer than me. And he'd be right. But it works for Allison Chains. It didn't work quite as well for, uh, for Queensryche and All I Want. I give Chris the thumbs up for going for it. I, I just wish that that would have been more on a DeGarmo solo album, I think. When I heard that song for the first time and realised it was DeGarmo singing, it did cross my mind that, and I don't know how true this is, that how invested Tate was in the whole record, that was the one song he just went, I really don't give a fuck, you sing it. I don't think that was it at all. If I remember when I spoke to Toby Wright, he said that Jeff was really encouraging about it. He was Jeff was going to sing. And then, but Chris said, hey, what about if I sang it? And Jeff was like, totally, go for it. You know, I, remember these guys, I mean, even in 97, as things were changing within the band and there were new relationships and new marriages and stuff and all that kind of stuff, those guys were still brothers who, you know, spent so many long years, you know, basically, you know, borrowing money out of each other's pockets and eating at one another's homes. You know, I, I just think it, it was still... To be a little cliche, I think it was still a brotherhood at that point, you know, and Jeff was probably like, really, go for it, and, and let's see how it turns out. I mean, in some ways, even though that song doesn't quite work for me with Chris singing, in some ways it was a very Queensryche thing to try. Did it work? Mm, not so much in my opinion. It, it kind of sounded a little Beatles to me, even though I don't think Chris meant for it to sound like the Beatles. It, it, that's what it ended up as, and it is what it is. Now, Doing the research for the book. And as a reminder, the book that Richie is referring to is, of course, Building an Empire, which is a great biography of Queensryche, of which uh, Brian is one of the co-authors. Credible ton of information in there from the early pre-Queensryche days right up through, uh, you know, modern times and lots of great pictures and all kinds of good stuff as well. So again, do yourself a favor, go pick yourself up a copy of Building an Empire. Uh, did you find out why there was no videos made for any of the songs on this album? Well, not specifically why, other than at the beginning for Sign of the Times, they just felt like MTV really didn't support them after I Am I uh, in Promised Land. That bridge got a little bit of airplay. Disconnected never got any real play, maybe a couple times here and there. So they didn't want to you know, spend the money to do it. Now remember... A lot of that money back in those days comes from the label. Um, and this is going to lead me down to this label thing again, this, the, the discussion about the label and what happened with them. But, you know, 
if you're the label and you know you're going to want to front money for videos, but you're not doing so hot financially, you're probably going to dissuade any notion of doing a video. And so my guess it was kind of twofold. I, I think it was, we don't really have a lot of supported MTV or we didn't towards the end of the Promised Land tour. And oh, by the way, EMI America is hemorrhaging cash and we're probably going to go belly up soon. So let's maybe not lay out all this money for a video. I don't know for certain, but that's what all the signs kind of pointed to when we were doing the uh, Queensryche biography. So to go out on tour in the U.S., do you remember who supported them? I think it, for that tour, it changed. They had um, they had local or not just local, like regional openers. Like for the Northeast, I saw them at Jones Beach and I saw them at um, what was then called PNC Bank Arts Center in New Jersey. And they had a band called Pissed On open for them. I've heard of um, them. Yeah, I, I had heard of them at the time, too. I, I remember not liking them, but I don't remember anything really else about them. I, I know the openers change, though, um, depending on where you saw where you saw the tour. You know, but that was, uh, yeah, I, I those, those are those are that was the band that I saw open for them. That's not a good sign when that's happening. Because normally bands, when they go out and... We're talking arenas, right? They were playing the they were playing the amphitheaters. They were playing sheds all across the United States. Um, the same venues that they were playing for Promised Land. Right, so we're talking 10,000 plus. Yeah, 8 to 10 probably. Normally a band of that size playing those sort of size venues, they have a, a, a support act that normally goes out on a lot of the shows and they're recognisable. You don't just pick local acts... You know, you cherry pick them um, because I know this is before the package tours, but you know what I'm trying to say? It's they, they have a name, yeah, no. not names. Yeah, absolutely. No, no, you're, you're not wrong. I mean, back then I didn't really, I mean, I wasn't thinking about this stuff back then. So, I mean, I was just psyched to go see Queensryche twice in a week. It was, it, it was cool. So I didn't really give a shit who the opener was. But I didn't think about that at the time. But, you know, looking back on it, you know, this was at the point when they had started their tour and their tour started in mid to late June um, of 97. You know, EMI America went bankrupt. And so they didn't ha Queensryche didn't have any tour support. They had to self-finance that tour. And back then, the labels would, would give bands money so they can go out and tour and bring on acts. I mean, of course, the bands would have to pay all that back. But you know, having the, the label give them that kind of tour support and that kind of funding to bring other acts on would then help fill the venues. I mean, I'll give you an example. When they went out in 95 on the Promised Land tour and brought along Typo Negative in the States, you know, those same amphitheaters, the Jones Beach Amphitheater, for instance, it was pretty, it was pretty full. It was probably full. I don't remember the exact attendance numbers, but it was close to being 100%. Same place two years later with you know, pissed on opening and Jones beach was probably 60% full. And a lot of that is due to, you know, EMI America going bankrupt and not being able to give the band any money to help finance the tour. And, um, that led to, you know, that's part of the, the reason why here in the now frontier kind of fell off the airwaves too. You have to wonder though, at that stage, like they're on Q prime, right? Q prime are the creme de la creme of management. Um, yeah, they were. Yep. You have to wonder at that. 
at that stage, with, with them as man, uh, managing the band, that they would have had contacts everywhere. Why the band even went out on tour at all if they knew that this was inevitable and that they'd have to finance it themselves? Well, I mean, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I, I've never been able to sit down with anybody from Q Prime or the band themselves. I haven't had enough time to sit down with them and ask specific questions on, on this time period. But, you know, I the whole situation from the moment that here in the now frontier was released to the moment they went on tour was a nightmare. I mean, so here in the now frontier was released on March 25th, 1997 here in the States at that point, that's three months prior to the tour starting. So Queens would have already been in production, obviously production for their tour and probably rehearsals for their tour. They probably had all their staging already purchased and they knew what they were doing. So, when EMI went bankrupt, which essentially happened right after Here in the Now Frontier was released, Queensryche had already invested money in all their staging, all their equipment, all their pre-production for the tour. So when you've already spent that kind of cash, thinking that you're going to get more cash coming in and it's not there, you need to go on tour and sell merch and go on tour and you know get those guarantees that you've already set up from the promoters to play all those gigs to help you pay back the money that you've already laid out, you know? And so I think they had to tour. I mean, it, it, it was not a, a question of maybe they shouldn't. They absolutely had to tour. They also needed to get their name out there. I mean, when you lose your label, well, you're essentially auditioning for other labels. So you want your record to do well. You want your record to sell and you want to make sure that you're out there. And so I don't think it was a bad idea for them to, you know, continue touring. I think they had to. I also think that that lack of tour support because EMI was gone at that point was the reason why that tour was so short. And, you know, I, I've said this to you before, and, and I'll say it here for anybody listening here, is that, you know, Sign of the Times reached, I believe, number 11 on the charts when it was released. You was the second single and was doing really well too and they were both on the chart i think at the same time the first week you was released and then as soon as here in the now frontier got released emi went bankrupt and at that moment all the influence at radio because labels back then had a huge influence on program directors hey, Ola. <laughs> yeah it was it was let's say what it is right yeah and so that was gone and immediately, those songs disappeared from the radio. They, I mean, Queensryche was primed with a, whether or not you like it or anybody um, listening to this podcast liked it or I liked it, that doesn't really matter. The point was, was that the record was doing well and the songs were doing well. And for them, as a Queensryche is a business entity, we're on the cusp of kind of getting back into that commercial spotlight and they just had the rug pulled out from underneath them. And, um, you know, kind of like Empire, where they had the right record at the right time with the right financial support. I think with Here in the Now Frontier, they did have the right record at the right time. Unfortunately, they no longer had the label. And, and that's what caused Here in the Now Frontier to sink. Can you remember any other bands on that label that the same thing happened to them at the same time? Because Queen's like... <sighs> To be honest, Richie, no, I can't at the same. I, I can't off the top of my head. I, I mean, I know they weren't the only one. I mean, yeah. that label had a bunch of other acts on it, but I don't remember 
at that time period. I, I mean, Queensryche's the one that always, obviously, um, given my history with it all, is always in the forefront of my mind. I can't remember anybody else. No, um, I'm, I'm just wondering, did they scrap their tours and Queensryche kept going one day with their one? That's a good question. Yeah. I mean, you know, we both have CD collections of probably like a few thousand each. We should probably flip through and see who was on him. <laughs> 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 um, so but yeah. You, so so you, you caught this tour, right? I did it twice. And they played, they were playing half the record, weren't they? Yeah, they were playing six or seven songs from it. Um, it was a, it was actually a kind of a cool tour when it first started. They, they were doing a, a bunch of promotional events like all bands did back then. And they still do here and there play radio stations. They were doing, they did a secret show for their fan club at the very large array in New Mexico, where they were just on a sparse stage out where all the satellite dishes were. And that was broadcast live on the radio. They did a couple really cool things and appearances and in store, but like they always did, they very much supported their new record. Uh, they opened with the voice inside, which was awesome. It was a good tune to start with. And, um, you know, that tour, I think they were playing about just about two hours. Empire was about two and a half hours, and I think Promised Land was two hours, and I think this was right up in the same ballpark, you know, but they had to change their set list up a little bit in the middle of the tour because Jeff, for the first time, and I think most people could remember at that point, he, uh, he picked up one of those really bad summer colds and blew out his voice for about a week and a half. So they had to alter the set list, which for people going to multiple shows, even though we felt bad for Jeff, it was kind of cool because they added songs like Della Brown, even though they cut the set list and made it like 16 songs, they added songs they weren't playing like Della Brown, which was nice to see that perform live. Something that wasn't so mentally and heavy, so Jeff didn't have to strain. So I ended up getting one of the shortened sets in New Jersey where they played Della Brown. And then I got their main set list when they finally um, came a few days later to Jones Beach. They played the full two hours with their main set. So that was cool. How did the Here in the Now Frontier songs sound live Com- did it did they sound as muddy as they do on the record compared to their earlier stuff or did they sound different no they sounded good in context with the rest of the songs i i mean thinking back on i mean i have the bootlegs of all these shows and i've seen them a, a gazillion times you know but it, it's you know it all flowed really well with the rest of the material. I mean, you know, just like in any show, when a band plays their new material and it sounds a little different, you know, bathroom breaks, blah, 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 blah. I think you have that for pretty much any band. But from a from a sound perspective, they flowed in well with the rest of the set. I mean, I never really had any real notion at the time um, that the sound of the songs were different than any of the other songs that they were playing. I mean, they played, I mean, back then, let me see if I remember back then that, you know, they were playing the stuff from mind crime. They played a few from empire. I don't think they played anything from rage for order. You know, they were playing their tunes and they all just kind of folded into one another, like a queen drive show would, you know, I didn't see any real difference from hearing jet city woman or hearing you. They, they all, they all fit together. So, no, I, I don't think there was anything drastically different about their live sound with those particular songs in comparison to the other ones. No, uh, mm-hmm. it was a good show. It, it was definitely a good show. I, I, I've, you know, they, they had their challenges on that tour, but, you know, with Jeff being sick, but all in all, I, I thought it was a, a, a good tour and 
the staging was pretty striking having a giant ear on stage i'll never forget that um that was pretty that was pretty funny it, it, it was cool too and scott's drum kit while it was a little bit more minimalistic it, it it was it was cool the way he had it set up um so it was a good tour so so did they did they not play all the u.s states and like they canceled some in the end and then they just went to south america and that was it is that what happened well, sort of. I mean, they canceled a couple in, I think they went on, I, I want to say it was Dayton, Ohio. They went on and about three songs in, Tate stops mid-song and they disappear for five minutes and Chris comes back out and tells everybody that, you know, they'll have to try and make up the show because Jeff is sick. And so they canceled like two or three other shows right after that date. And then they picked up again, like I said, with the shortened set lists. And then eventually by the time they got back to the New York area. They were playing their full two hours again. You could tell Jeff was still under the weather, but he was able to do it. And they played their U.S. tour all the way through August of 97. Oh, so they, so um, they finished all the dates, even though they, they were did. Yeah, the themselves. Tour, they did. They finished up all their dates. You know, and at that point, it was an interesting point for them because at that particular time, you know, that's got to be rough. You self-finance this tour that, that didn't do so hot you know, in terms of putting people in the, in the seats and you've got, you don't have a record company and oh, by the way, you know, Chris is thinking about leaving the band at that point. Yeah. <laughs> so, so when, 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 when did they finish the U S dates? Was it August or something like that? Yeah, it was like, uh, I want to say mid August. I know one of the things for, for fellow Queensryche nerds out there, one of the, I don't know if it was one of the first, but I know it was Queensryche's first internet broadcast, I believe was at the Starplex in Dallas, Texas. I want to say August 16th, 1997. And uh, that was broadcast on the internet. It was one of the first, uh, the only first show that Queensryche, I think, broadcasted on the internet. And it might have been one of the, the first shows, period. I'm not really sure about that. But yeah, they played a nice two-hour show. They added Walk in the Shadows, which wasn't normally being played on that tour. They added that one for the broadcast. But they did all their U.S. dates, and uh, they packed the, packed the inflatable ears up and, and went home to Seattle. So the, the gap between that show and the shows in South America was for a European tour that never happened, probably. I would assume so, yeah. I, I've never been able to get um, def a definitive answer for that. But, I mean, that gap is pretty significant so I, I would assume so yes i mean at that point too you know again without the label queen's rex not going to try and finance a european tour at that point after they just self-financed the u.s tour i think it was a, a point where they were going to need to have discussions with labels i know at the time virgin records absorbed emi america and they were having they were going to need to have conversations with virgin and i think ultimately that was the point where Chris started thinking about some, doing something else other than Queensryche. I've often wondered, it's probably what wasn't a shock then to the band members that he, he, he wanted to go because you're really not paying attention if you don't notice the signs. Maybe. Maybe. It's hard, right? Because the band will tell you one thing and then you'll kind of, if you, if you look at things objectively, you'll kind of see another you know, it, it's hard, right? I mean, I know a lot of these personalities in the band and, and, and how they how they worked, you know. I don't really know, you know. I, I'm, I'm not really sure. I know that Chris made a decision, a decision about his future 
fairly quickly after the tour, I'd say within a month or so, if I remember right from the stuff we, we researched for the book, I, I would say by September, September, October, Chris knew and he told everybody in the band that he was out. But the band had already committed contractually to perform in South America in December of 97. So Chris stayed on to do those dates. And I think his last his last one, I think, was December 13th, 1997. And, and by the way, you mentioned Q Prime earlier. Once Q Prime got wind that Chris was done, that, then they dropped the band. So, so they dropped the band before they even did the South American shows? Yes. Okay. So it was as simple as that. Q Prime said, the Garmo's gone, we're out. That it can't be yeah, that simple. Everything, it, it, it was, well, I, I mean, I don't know if that was the only thing, yeah. you know, but I mean... I mean, Q Prime is Q Prime for a reason, right? Yeah, They've got I know. <laughs> much more intelligent people than you and I running that ship. And, yeah. and, you know, when you got the guy that writes a lot of the songs for a band and he's just done, and that band's been around since 81, 82, 83, it might be time. And, and so, I mean, it, it. plus, I'm sure Q Prime ain't cheap either. So, uh, you know, Queensryche, in terms of trying to finance everything that they wanted to finance, it was going to be tough to keep on Q Prime anyway. Okay. Is, is that radio broadcast out there? The one from, uh, I think it was Dallas? Yeah, but you said there was one before that? Yeah, the one at the very large array, the early June, early June 1997. Yeah, it's out there. Okay, um, I'll have to look that up because I'd like to hear th- those songs in a live setting. Yeah, the show they broadcasted, I want to say, probably, I'm looking it up as we're talking, but I, I want to say they broadcasted like six songs from from the show. They played longer than that. They played, I think, maybe 10 or 12 songs, but they, um, they, they I think they played Sign of the Times and You, and I want to say one more from that record. But yeah, it's, it's out there. I remember um, that was right around the time of my 21st birthday, so I remember... I remember holding, having my, I enlisted my younger brother to record it on a boombox for me because I was going into New York City to celebrate my 21st birthday and I was so pissed that he, uh, that he screwed up the tape and didn't flip the tape for me. I'll never forget that. <laughs> anyway, it was um, back then when we had, you know, all those issues of flipping tapes and doing all that stuff. So it was um, June 5th, 1997, and it was broadcast live. And they played, from, from here in the Now Frontier, the whole show, they played You, The Voice Inside, Sign of the Times, Some People Fly, Get a Life. And that was it from here in the Now Frontier, but a good chunk of it. Yeah. Um, but they only, they only broadcast probably about a half a dozen songs, but it's out there. So, yeah, you can probably look it up on YouTube. And um, there's some bootleg CDs out there of the, the FM recording, too. Now, the interesting thing, and you, you, you can tell me if I'm way off on this when I'm talking about this record now, the only track they really play on it now from this is Hit the Black. They don't even play that anymore. You, I mean, they did. Uh, yeah, after, well. After this tour I'm talking about. Like, oh, after this tour? No, they, they played, they played actually a few more. They, they played, um, they played Hit the Black. I think that was probably the most popular one that they played. They played Reach. They played Sign of the Times. What else? I'm trying going down the list here. Um, but those are pro- probably you, the when main you, three. When you talk about recent tours, and I'm talk, I'm not even talking about Todd singing right. in the band. 
I'm right. talking about the dedicated to chaos and American soldier and all that. They, they were they were ignoring this record more or less 100. percent Well, American soldier, you got to remember that was a different tour. That was the tour where they were playing the three suites from Empire, American Soldier, and Rage for Order. So they weren't going to play any of that, any of here in the Now Frontier on that. And then when they did the dedicated to chaos thing, they were focusing on the band's. 30th anniversary and they were generally just playing a few few songs from dedicated to chaos and then just the hits you know my crime and empire and whatever you know but the stuff from here in the now frontier was in heavy rotation on the q2k later later in the q2k tour um i know they played reach on that tour for sure i remember them playing sign of the times with mike stone when he was in his first run with the band so th- they definitely played these songs a little longer, but they haven't been played in a long time from now. I think when you look at the the current version of the band with Todd, they really they, when when it goes to the early stuff, they only really go up to Empire. They might play the odd track from Promised Land, and they just completely ignore this record. Yeah, I mean it's not surprising. I mean, I mean, I know you know Todd's you know Todd's been in Queens right now for. 10 years, 10 plus years now. So, I mean, he's, Todd's a metal guy and he loves the EP stuff, you know, through empire, you know, a little bit of, I know a lot of the fans love promised land. I love promised land. They've played IMI and damaged, but the stuff that gets away from that metal vibe, I just don't think he's gonna, I just don't think this version of Queensryche is ever gonna do so much. I mean, it's just not the vibe of Queensryche in 2022. Which is fine, right? I mean, it's a different era, and it's a, a different, in, for all intents and purposes, Queensryche's a completely different entity than it was in nineteen, you know, in the nineteen nineties. So they, they are a, a, almost a fully different band. So I, that makes sense to me. I would like them to experiment and maybe pull out some of these tracks. I mean, I could hear the current version of Queensryche taking a track like "Saved," which was heavy and kind of different for Queensryche. I could see them reworking that. I could see Todd doing that chorus justice. I mean, he just screams out saved, right? But I could hear Todd doing some vocal gymnastics with that to make it even cooler. You know, there's a couple songs on there I really think that the current version of Queensryche could mess around with. But, you know, when you when you think about Queensryche in 2022... They have a new album they're going to be supporting. And if you haven't heard about the new album, it is called Digital Noise Alliance. And there are pre-orders for it going on right now. The expected release on that is October 7th. And that's available in all the usual things, vinyl, digipack, as well as a limited edition boxed up kind of digipack and a few other little trinkets in there as well. So uh, good stuff. Go out and get yourself a copy of Digital Noise Alliance. And, you know, they play to the festival crowds They, they who want to hear the hits. They want to hear Empire and Jet City Woman for the one millionth time. And I get it, you know. So I wouldn't hold out any hope that any of the material from here in the Now Frontier will, will come down the pipeline. I know Tate, however, Tate revisits the record um, every so often. What sounds? Because uh, I was going to ask you about Tate. I, as far as I know, he... He's like Rage for Order, Mind Crime, Empire, Prom- and now he's out doing shows playing the whole of Promised Land. 
and this is 25 years old. I don't see any posters up saying I'm going to do a suite of songs on this one. Well, I mean, remember, I mean, for everything we just talked about, I mean, here in the Now Frontier, the stage was set for that record to be huge. And because of the factors of the label and everything else, it, you know, it, it wasn't. So not as many people remember, you know, Sign of the Times and You and some of those songs. But I, I know when Tate was, did his acoustic shows, he played Some People Fly. And it was really good. Tate was, re- <laughs> I still have the vision of Tate, you know, slapping his hands for that song and singing that a few years back at the acoustic shows that he did around the U.S. And uh, it was a good rendition. I mean, so he brings back some of those tracks that, you know, I, I think the current Queensryche w- wouldn't play anymore. You know, I- I'd like to see him go a little bit further and, and-, and pull some of the other ones out there. You know, I, I know when he did his first now we're going back now and we're going back 20 years now, but I, I know when he did his first solo tour and his first ever solo show I was at, he played spool and that was cool. So that was really cool to see. But I, yeah, uh, I just don't think the current Queensryche is in a space where they would probably revisit much of here in the now frontier. And frankly, I think that's a shame, but I, I do understand why. Here's why I think Tate should do this more. Especially because of all the shows he does. Cause, and he does a lot of fucking shows, right? <laughs> yeah, he does. <laughs> There's no European tour for this record. The European audience never got a chance to hear any of these songs live. He should do a tour where he plays all of Empire and a selection of songs from this. Something like that. Some themed tour like that. And I guarantee you that the audience in Europe would laugh, lap this up. They'd be like, fuck, he's playing half of here in the now frontier we never saw that in 97 they never came here maybe i i think i think you're you're what you were saying about theme tours is spot on i mean let, let's face it tate's having a lot of success you know playing records in their entirety from queensrike's catalog and you know I, i've been keeping my eye on that promised land thing too i've seen the tour dates that he has in europe uh for playing songs from promised land and the warning and all that stuff. I I think that's a good idea. I think though that the European crowd and you correct me if I'm wrong, but the European crowd is, is more looking generally for the metal stuff. You know, he's doing EP stuff and, you know, stuff from the warning. I mean, yeah, promised land is there too, but you know, they want their metal and I don't blame them. I, I do too, but I mean, I would love to see him do it. I just think that you'd have to sell a promoter on that. And I don't know if I'm a a promoter in Europe, if I can sell, hey, I'm going to play a suite of songs from here in the now frontier, a record that nobody over here has heard. I don't know. I think think the most likely scenario to see these songs again will probably be when Tate eventually goes out and does that acoustic thing again. He had so much fun. I've never seen Tate have as much fun as he did when he did this acoustic tour that he did a few years back now. He had a blast. And there weren't many people in the room, which was a problem, you know, but he had a blast. And because it was acoustic, some of the songs that he played were rearranged, which then gives the band, they sounded the same. Some People Fly sounded the same. It was just an acoustic rendition. But, you know, it was really cool for the hardcores that were sitting in the audience to hear things like that. And I, and I think that's the best chance we'll probably ever see to get these songs from here in the Now Frontier played. I, I, I hope so. I, I do think it's a vastly under 
underrated and undervalued record. I don't think that by any means it's one of Queensryche's best records. It's not. But I just think there's value in those songs, and there's a lot of cool Queensryche moments in those songs that I think gets overlooked just because the record never really did anything and people label it as a, you know, quote-unquote grunge thing. It, it just never got its proper due. And, and, and I think if you've been hanging with the band for these last 25 years and you've just pushed here on the Now Frontier side, it's really worth kind of going back in and, and, and listening to these, some of these songs and seeing what they were trying to do with them because some of them really popped out to me. We'll just finish up on this, Brian. You brought up sure. there about you don't think that it, you know, playing a lot of these songs that fly with a European audience. I beg to differ with you because, and it's been bandied about for years by a lot of different people, and I've seen it. The European audience, in general, are more loyal. They know the catalogue. They don't just know the hits. Um, So if you play the hits and then play some of this, I think people would lap it up. Plus, and here's another thing that I didn't mention. A lot of this stuff will be easier for Tate to sing now on this record than the stuff that's on the earlier records that were he oh, was absolutely. singing he was singing a lot higher and he said it himself that it's diffi- it's really difficult to sing to sing that stuff now and pull it off cuz Tate's in his early 60s now isn't he this stuff would be easier for him to sing Oh for sure and and you know what you're absolutely right I mean from I mean obviously I I'm not European but you're right the European crowds are really loyal that that is true and, and so I, I stand corrected on that for sure. I just I know every time that 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 Tate goes to to Europe, I see him doing a lot of these metal festivals, and so I just assume that you know a lot of the European audience really wants the metal stuff. But you know what? I've heard that too. You know, European crowds are loyal; they know the catalog. I hope so. I mean, and when you were saying that, it also I remembered another thing. Queensrÿche played Saved um, a handful of times when they went to Europe in two thousand three to support Tribe. So they pulled that song out too. So that's been played live as well. You know, I, I hope so. You know, I, I hope these songs do see the light of day in Europe at some point. Tate is um, 63. Yeah, he's 63. He just had some sort of heart surgery. Yeah, that's uh, right. You know, it, it, it sounds like, well, I mean, I don't know what it what it was. He was he was vague about it. He just mentioned it was heart surgery. Sounds like to me he had some had to have something cleaned out, and it sounds like he's well on the way to being amended up and ready to rock. So, I looking at that touring schedule that he has through the middle of 2023. Better get the ticker in order so he can go out and still belt Queen of the Reich. Because I don't know if you've been listening, but it looked like they brought back Queen of the Reich, and he's actually been improving to a degree. I mean, you mentioned his voice; he dropped the tuning a little bit, and he's able to hit some of that stuff, and he's giving giving some effort. Yeah, you know, and and I think that was the thing that, for me as a fan, that was the thing that I didn't really care as much about the range as I did about the effort. Try, and if you don't get the note, that's okay, you know. But try or rearrange how you get to a point to hit a note. Perfect example, and I don't want to take us off the beaten path too much, but perfect example is Ray Alder from Fate's Warning. Ray can still once in a while hit those notes on no exit. He's done it. When they did their last couple tours, I was at one show, I think it was in LA, and he laughed because they were playing something from Ivory Gated Dreams, and he goes, all right, I'm going to give this a try. And he goes for one of the bigger notes in one of the songs, and 
he just about got it. And after the after it, he laughed at himself, and he's like, "I almost got there. That, that shit's hard." And he did it with a laugh, and his voice still sounds good with the songs, even though he doesn't go for every high note. But the effort's there. And for me, bringing this back to Tate, I see that effort again. And for me, that makes all the difference in the world. Because every singer is going to have days that are good and days that are bad. But if you're going out and you're trying to sing songs from that back catalog and you're given an effort, if the notes come, they come. If they don't, they don't. But I'd be pleased. I'd be happy to go see him try to go sing Queen of the Reich again. And when I saw the YouTube clips, he sounded pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. He can still sing, but the bar he set for himself is so high when you listen to those early records. It's phenomenally high. They all set the bar high. I mean, I mentioned Dokken earlier. I mean, some of that stuff is ungodly high. And, and, and it's like, if you know anything about singing, and, you know, I mean, I'm a singer. I'm not a professionally trained singer, but, I mean, my wife is, and I know how to sing, and I'm a, I'm a decent singer. That stuff is that's crazy, man. I, I mean, we all love it, and we love all those iconic high notes, and guys like Latori and Tate and everybody else are blessed to be able to hit that stuff. But, holy shit, that's high, and... and you know, I'm okay with, you know, dropping the songs a little bit to hit a note without it having to split my eardrums. That's fine, but make the effort. And I'm glad that Tate's making that effort. Looks like Queensryche's got a new album coming out, and they're going to go forth and, and hopefully play a lot of that. So, you know, all is good in the Queensryche world. But here in the Now Frontier, Richie, I'm telling you, go revisit it. Um, there's some, it, thing, there's some things. It. I listened to it in the car yesterday, and I listened to it in the car today. And all the way through now. And my opinion hasn't really changed on it in 25 years. <laughs> I, I'm, well, still, I'm still waiting for the light switch to go off to say, and, and for me to say, wow, this is a work of genius. And you bear in mind now that I listen to a lot of different styles of music and appreciate them. But you do. This yeah. album, it just, it's it's never fully clicked with me. And I've tried and tried, and I've revisited this album because it's Queensryche a lot more than I probably would with a lot of other bands, where I would have gone, ah, it's not clicking with me, and I'd never listen to it again. Or I'd listen to it once every 10 years. Well, I, you know what? I mean, it doesn't, it works, it's just like any music, right? Some of it, some albums work for some people, and, and, and some don't for others, and so I totally get it, but, you know, I've got at least another 25 years to keep working on you, so I'm going to keep trying to change <laughs> Alright, Brian, I gotta go. Alright, Richie, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been fun. We should do this more often. Absolutely. All I'll right. talk to you soon. Take care. Yeah, alright. Take care, Brian. Bye. And there you have it. Uh, for my money, way more discussion on that album than uh, I would ever want to hear. But there you go. 90 minutes worth of in-depth good stuff with Brian and Richie all about Queensryche's here in the now frontier. And, you know, Brian does have a point when he talks about, you know, going in there and looking for the value in the songs. I just kind of sit on the other side of it going, I understand that. And he has some great points with some of those moments. But you shouldn't have to sit there and listen for those moments you know, and really like dig time and time again before you finally start to hear some of that stuff. For my money on there, if there was some greatness out of Michael and Chris on here, then Toby should have brought some of that up in the mix. Maybe not every single moment of greatness, but just a little bit, just something to give kind of long time Reich fans, something to cling on to, and maybe give them something to relate to on the album. But again, 
Just my opinion. So a big thanks to Brian. Always great to have him on the show. And he's done so much good stuff with us that uh, you guys don't even know. And uh, hopefully more stuff coming your way with, uh, with Brian as well. But anyways, for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and Brian, have yourselves a great meta week. And until we talk to you again next time, as always, remember. Focus. Still here? It's over. Go home.